you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the epistle to the Colossians in chapter 3. Paul's epistle to the Colossians will be this morning in chapter 3 as we continue in our regular exposition of this book of the Bible. We'll be this morning in verses 18 through 21. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Please listen as I read the word of the Lord, Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. I'm going to pray before I preach, and if you agree with this prayer, let me encourage you to articulate a loud and healthy amen at the end of the prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we so want to be Bible people, people who are shaped by the Scriptures, the people who are eager to bow the wills of our minds, the affections of our hearts. Uh, the actions and conduct of our lives to what we read in your word. So please help us to do this. You have given preaching as a gift to your church to help instruct and feed your flock. Please do that now. Please bless us in the consideration of these verses and what you call wives and husbands and children and parents too in your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been considering the epistle to the Colossians, which has as its theme the centrality and the preeminence of the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've been seeking to highlight this major theme, this main theme, in the various chapters we've been expounding. Well, now in chapter 3, that theme is still in play, and it's been in play in the first several verses of this chapter, but if you just read verses 18 through 21, Uh, You could maybe miss that this is still part of the context, this is part of the main theme, though I hope to show that it is present in our text uh, itself this morning. In chapter 3, Paul has been providing directives for how life among the church body should be lived. He's concerned with how we as church members, as we as brothers and sisters, those united to Christ, live in our union and fellowship with one another. But now in these verses, Paul narrows his focus on the Christian family with instructions given variously to husbands and wives, to children and parents, and then finally, we'll consider this next week, the instructions that Paul gives to masters and servants. Uh, These instructions mirror what would have been known in those days as household codes, so it was not uncommon for various philosophers and teachers and sophists and orators and different ones to stipulate various what we could call household codes. This is how Uh, Men and women should conduct themselves in the context of the family, in the context of the household. And Paul, mirroring that tradition of presenting two families' household codes, he's presenting distinctly Christian household codes. Uh, So what directives, what codes of conduct should regulate and govern the Christian family? How should the Christian household be organized? Paul gives specific directives to each member of the family, and in each case, the directives are given quite briefly and kind of sort of quick, sort of punchy kind of instructions and directives. Paul is by no means comprehensive in his instructions. We should not think that these few verses we read in Colossians 3 uh, comprehend all that the Bible would teach concerning the Christian family and individual members of that family. Paul himself and other biblical writers will say more elsewhere, but here in the letter to the Colossians, Paul chooses to give short, pointed, and practical directives to wives and husbands, children and parents, masters and servants. I don't think we should be especially given over to speculation as to why he gives these particular directives to each one and why did he not say other things? Why are these the particular instructions that he gave? I think our time would be used more profitably if we just sort of take these instructions as granted and then try to understand, okay, well, what do these instructions mean? 
I can't get behind the author and understand all the reasons why he puts forward what he would put forward, but I can see what he has put forward, and it's that that we want to consider this morning. My outline for our consideration of this cluster of verses could not be more plain and easy to follow. We'll have four points this morning. Instructions to wives, number one. Instructions to husbands, number two. Uh, instructions to children, number three. And then a discourse concerning the means by which just... No, I'm kidding. Number four is instructions to parents. So instructions to wives, instructions to husbands, instructions to children, instructions to parents. Before we open up this outline, let me first say a word to those here who are single. That is to say, uh, you're an adult, you're not married. You may think, oh, a sermon on uh, husbands and wives and parents and children. Well, I could check out at this time. Please do not do that. Uh, this sermon is very much for you for at least a couple of reasons. First of all, you may not always be single. Uh, second of all, uh, you need to know how to love and serve and pray for and minister to your Christian brothers and sisters who are married or are parents or are children. Okay, so we are all in this sinful mess together. We are helping one another heavenward. And just how those of us who are married wish to help and serve you in your singleness, we hope that you will help us uh, as those who are uh, given husbands and wives or children or uh, children of parents. And so uh, use this sermon, my single friend, as a way to help and encourage your brothers and sisters here. But I hope to also show that many of the motivations that Paul will give for heeding these instructions would also apply uh, to directives he would give to those who are single. But now as we consider these instructions to the Christian family, I want to remind you of a basic biblical truth. Jesus Christ is the living word. And as the living word, he is behind every text and every verse of the written word. And so this morning, wives, husbands, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, we should hear these directives as if they are coming from the lips of the Lord Himself. We should receive these texts as the words of the Master to us. So let's consider each one now. Number one, let's consider Paul's instruction to wives. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Paul here is giving a very clear, simple, and I'm sure to his mind, uncontroversial directive. Very simply, what is it that Paul is calling these women to? The obvious answer is submission to their husbands. But what does that mean? What does it mean to submit to one's husband? What is the nature of the submission in view? Let me just say, I understand that word, submit, especially when put in this context of wives submitting to their husbands. For some of us here, that may carry some really troublesome freight for you. So you hear that word, submit to your husband, and you import into that word all kinds of things that I hope to show this text does not intend to convey. Uh, so I just know culturally the idea that a wife would submit to her husband might seem, on the face of it, very problematic. What we need to labor to do when studying the Bible is not to import all of our cultural and personal baggage into the text, but to rather ask, what did the original author intend to convey when he set forth this truth inspired by God's Spirit? Okay, so what do we mean, or what does Paul mean more specifically in Colossians 3.18 when he talks about wives submitting to husbands? How should we understand submission? Well, I'll just acknowledge, most of you would know this. If you're visiting with us, you may not. We have been spending the last several weeks in a class on the subject of gender. And so we considered this exact question uh, in great detail just a couple of weeks ago in our Equip class. And I believe uh, that content is available at our website. Uh, I've also preached, actually, on all of the household codes we are given in the New Testament, just, just in our regular exposition through various books. So we preach on Ephesians and Titus and 1 Peter, which include... Uh, this same directive. So that's all online if you want to search out those passages. I'm not going to be as comprehensive as I normally seek to be when we address this issue because we very recently addressed it. That said, I still want to labor to define what it means that a wife is to submit to her husband. First of all, let's consider what it does not mean. What it does not mean. This is the kind of thing we don't want to import into that word, submit. First of all, the submission required of a wife cannot be coerced. Very simply. The submission of a wife to her husband, it can't be coerced. It can't be exacted by her husband. 
So Paul doesn't give the directive to husbands. Husbands, bring your wife into submission. Doesn't say that. He directs the imperative to the wife and says, wives, voluntarily, in accord with your own will, gladly, for Jesus, submit to your own husband. Number two, women are not called to submit to men generally. So all of the passages that speak to wives submitting to their husbands emphasize this. It is submission to their husbands. Uh, some of the texts make this even more explicit than Colossians 3.18 makes it. Wives are to submit to your own husbands, the text might say, and that would work in this particular context as well. Women are not to submit to men generally. They are sub- to submit to their own husbands. Number three, submission does not require that a wife submit to wickedness. Let me state that again. Submission does not require that a wife submit to wickedness. Wives, your husband asks you to participate in some sinful act. His headship and leadership in the home is ultimately subordinate to the headship and leadership and lordship of Christ. And when he asks you to engage in some activity that is prevented or censured by the will of the living Christ, the Lord's headship supersedes your husband's headship. So you do not submit to your husband in wickedness. And this would preclude all forms of abuse. You are not required to submit to any form of abuse. You're not required to submit to wickedness. Number four, submission does not require that you agree with your husband at all points or that you may not try to persuade him to think differently than he does. So the submission required here is not a call to check your brain at the door and to not give counsel and input to your husband. And sisters, you may sometimes strenuously urge your husband to think differently on a particular issue. Do so in a gracious way, in a way that honors his headship and certainly communicates love to him. But you are not required to agree with your husband in order to submit to him. And then number five, what submission does not mean. Submission does not require that the wife be less competent than her husband or less spiritually mature than her husband in order to submit to him. Did you catch that? This is actually an important principle far beyond the home, okay? Submission does not require that the wife be less competent than her husband or less spiritually mature than her husband in order to submit to him. Okay, so I don't really know where the idea came from, but the idea that I need only submit to someone else if they have superior competence and maturity to me is foreign to the Bible. I I really don't, maybe that's a a modern-day kind of egalitarian notion. Uh, I want to take this outside of the family and the home for a minute. The same thing would apply in the church. Uh, So you should not think those who are serving as elders and pastors in the church are necessarily the most godly, competent, and wise people in the church. There's a baseline level of qualification they must meet, but, but our attitude ought not to be, well, as long as I have more maturity than the eldership, I can, I can differ from them, and, and I don't have to submit to their authority in the church. Similarly, uh, with respect to the government, uh, we are told to submit to the governing authorities in all things lawful. Uh, If we think we could run the country better than fill in the blank or that we might run the local county board better than so-and-so, that does not amount to a warrant to be unsubmissive to them. Uh, So this whole notion of like hashtag not my president, that's ungodly. Uh, God in his sovereignty and in his providence places above us rulers and authorities. And he calls us in his providence and his sovereignty Uh, to submit to them in all things lawful. And so to take the attitude, well, I don't recognize the authority over me. I think I could do a better job than the authority above me. I think I know better than the authority above me. Therefore, the call to submit is thereby abrogated is not an idea supportable by the Bible. And I want to say to the sisters here, I hope this is a comfort to you. If you have a husband who in various ways is not as competent as you are, as shrewd as you are, as intelligent as you are, as wise as you are, be relieved. He doesn't have to be in order for you to fulfill the will of Christ in submitting to his leadership. All right, so that's what submission is not. And I'll just say, I don't state that as any sort of apology for the word of God. Uh, We are not at all ashamed of what this passage teaches, but I think it's important in light of our cultural context to make clear that submission does not entail these things that I have just listed. What exactly now is then positively the nature of the submission required of the wife. The English word submit is a translation of the Greek word hupotasso. Submit is a fine enough translation of that Greek word. The word speaks to a difference in rank. 
It is the idea of being under, that's the hupo part, hupotasso, under the headship or authority of another, or of placing oneself under another's leadership. Uh, the husband, in this sense, is said to outrank the wife in the home. Now, it's important that we recognize in what way the husband outranks the wife, uh, the way in which she is said to be under her husband. It is not in terms of dignity or status or worth before God. You know, when we say, why submit to your husbands, that does not necessitate the idea that the wife is inferior in her person, in her dignity and her worth before God. Uh, it does not mean that the wife is inferior in terms of intellect ability or competence. Uh, rather, the husband outranks the wife in the sense of authority in the home. He is given by Christ, called of Christ, to occupy the position of headship or leader in the home. And the husband as head has the final say in the direction and course of the family. Here's a decision that must be made. Though the wife can and should give valuable and wise input and counsel, she may even urge her husband to take this course or that. The husband is given by Christ the final authority in the leadership and direction of the family. Thus, we might expect there will emerge within marriage situations in which a wife must voluntarily submit to her husband in the sense that she defers to his leadership and is willing in settings to support her will to his. In such instances, she is not required necessarily to agree with him, but she is required to submit to him. Remember, with all the qualifications I gave a moment ago. Furthermore, it is likely, I think, that the biblical call to submission for the wife requires more than just action, more than, okay, here's a decision. I've made my will known. I'm going to submit to my husband's will in this. It probably requires that the wife also take a certain kind of posture and disposition toward her husband. Uh, so submission is not just action. It's not less than action but it's not just action. The wife is to humbly and cheerfully recognize, support, encourage, and celebrate God's calling on her husband to be the leader in the home. In other words, it is a disposition, an attitude of the heart, as well as an action. She is to labor to become an effective helper, supporter, and counselor to her husband and to accept and promote his leadership. I think this is something of the essence of biblical Submission. But now notice, sisters, wives among us, the motivation that is given in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. You see that? Submit to your husbands as is fitting, as is suitable, as is pleasing to the Lord. That is to say, sisters, do this because it is pleasing in the Lord's eyes. A wife's submission to her husband is a handsome thing to God. It is a godly thing. It is ultimately the approval of the Lord that drives a godly wife's submission to her husband's. And sister's uh, husband, excuse me, let me make clear, I misspoke there. It's the will of the Lord, the pleasure of the Lord, the smile of the Lord that is to motivate ultimately the voluntary and free and intelligent submission of a wife to her husband. And sisters, I just encourage you to embrace the freedom that that affords you. So you're not doing this ultimately because your hubby is so spectacular and wise and man, he never messes up and he's just the greatest thing and I fawn over him and he's just so awesome. That's not the reason given. You submit to your husband because you recognize God in his love and in his sovereign will and in his providence for me has given me this husband for my good and he has so designed things and arranged things such that the husband is to be the head of the home. And he calls me to submit to him. And in submitting to him, I can have the assurance that I am bringing a smile to the face of my Savior. That he takes pleasure when I follow his will. I don't need to know all the reasons why. Sometimes it could be hard for me to heed this command that the Lord has given to me. But my motive at all times is that this is fitting according to the Lord. This is pleasing in His sight. I know that this would invite His approval. His smile and His approval is ultimately our motivation, service to Christ. So sisters, I encourage you to heed the exhortation of this passage. God calls you to this. 
He calls you to godly, humble, intelligent, cheerful submission to your husband as to the Lord. And you do this ultimately for Christ's smile and approval. And you embrace this as His good for you, His assignment and His providence, an indication of His good purposes for you, and in love for your husband, and most of all, in love for Christ and out of obedience to Him, you agree to follow in the Lord's will for wives and to submit to your own husband as is fitting in the Lord. So sisters, endeavor with the help of Christ to celebrate your husband's leadership, to support, promote, and encourage it. Let him know by your words and by your conduct that you honor and respect him and are eager to follow him. Be an effective counselor and friend to him. Give him at all times good, wise, and godly input that strengthens and enriches his leadership in the home. But let him know that you accept and embrace the Lord's will for your life and that you are eager to support and encourage his leadership in the home. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. All right, number two, instructions to husbands. That's number one, instructions to wives. Now, secondly, instructions to husbands. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, I just want to first acknowledge what a striking directive this would have been within a first century Colossian context. Okay, so for some men sitting in the room, uh, when this letter was read aloud, this would be the first time they had ever heard in their life that they ought to love their wives. The, the fact that this verse and this word to husbands doesn't strike us as a radical statement is actually a reflection of how much our culture has been influenced by Christianity. Okay, so in territories under Roman rule in the first century, it was not uncommon for wives to be treated as property. Uh, spousal abuse was very common. In fact, there were laws regulating just how far you could go in your abuse of your wife. There were parameters. Within this range, you can beat your wife. Yeah, you can't kill her. There were certain places where you couldn't leave marks. But there were laws concerning how much you could abuse your wife. Consent was not universally required for sex. In fact, historically speaking, it was Christianity that actually provided the precondition for consent laws. The idea that you would have to consent to a sexual encounter, that has its origins in Christianity. Uh, you might go to 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about this, talks about how a wife should give certain things to her husband and a husband to a wife. The assumption there is that these things may not be exacted. You can't abuse your spouse. Uh, rather, consent must be given. That's a distinctly, thoroughly, profoundly Christian idea. The idea of violating another person was based profoundly on a Christian view of the human person and a Christian view of the dignity of manhood and womanhood and the beauty and safety of the sexual relationship. Uh, furthermore, infidelity among married men was often just assumed. So most men in high society had mistresses. And the wives expected that. There was no reason to be secretive about it. You just assumed that men had multiple partners. So, so young people now I'm probably going to show my age here. Is Beyonce still popular? Could some 16-year-old, yeah, okay. Uh, when Beyonce sings a song complaining about how her husband Jay-Z has cheated on her, she is actually acting out a very distinctively Christian idea. She may not know it. But the idea that cheating is wrong and that faithfulness to your partner, to your spouse, is right, that has its origins in Christianity. Uh, so the, the notion that we would want to preserve uh, the, the safety and security and beauty of a monogamous relationship. The idea that cheating to our ears is, oh, of course that's wrong. You should be faithful. That comes from a Christian worldview, a Christian ethic. Okay, so furthermore, speaking of the ancient secular household codes, if you were to study the history of uh, the uh, early centuries of the Roman Empire, if you were to study... Uh, the Mediterranean Peninsula, if you were to study ancient philosophers like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and different teachers of those days, they might give various household codes. Okay, so listen, of all the ancient secular household codes that we have discovered, not a single one of them makes any mention of a husband loving his wife. So, so they include other things like you ought to manage your household well, you ought to keep your families in order or something like that. There were different directives given to husbands and how they were to live. Not a single one of them reflected the idea that love had any place 
in the marriage relationship. So if you sat with the typical married Colossian man and asked him why he married his wife or what he felt was the heart of marriage, no one would have answered love. The primary function of the husband was not understood to be to love his wife. Sons would not have been taught that part of being a husband one day was to love and care for a woman. But along comes the revelation of God's design for marriage and the Christian view of marriage. And this design, this view has at its heart the very essence, the sine qua non of marriage. That is the thing without which marriage doesn't even exist. The very heart of marriage is to be found in a husband loving his wife sacrificially. Think of how this would have changed things. You're 48 years old. You've been married for 30 years. Never once have you been told you ought to love your wife. And then here comes the Apostle Paul, witness to the resurrected Christ and his husbands. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. How this would have changed things. The New Testament elevates the importance of love and mutual affection in the marriage relationship, especially directed from the husband toward his wife. And husband, not only should you love her, Paul says also you should never be harsh with her. I don't care what the law says, Colossian man sitting here. She's not your property. I don't care what the law allows you to do in terms of abusing her and mistreating her. You may not do so according to the law of Christ. If you submit to Jesus as Lord, you may not be harsh with your wife. So verse 19, plainly, includes two imperatives. I want to look at each a little more closely. Let's look a little more closely. First of all, that imperative, husbands, love your wife. That's the directive to the husband. What does that word mean? I think when we read love as an imperative verb, we should read into that word everything we know to be true of biblical love. The word is agape, the most simple expression of that word in the New Testament. Our minds may legitimately go to Jesus' words in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. We may go to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. We may go to the very chapter we've been considering, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. But perhaps the best text we could consult is Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 30. The book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians were written by Paul while he was in his first Roman imprisonment in the early 60s AD. Some scholars believe they were written right after one another. So it's possible literally Paul wrote the book of Colossians and then dabbed his pen in the ink, got a little more parchment, and then wrote the letter to the Ephesians. So Paul may have written Ephesians 5, 25 through 30, uh, just two hours before or after he wrote Colossians chapter 3. And this is what he says in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. What is emphasized in this passage concerning the kind of love a husband should reflect to his wife? Well, it's not primarily leadership dynamics in the sense of assertiveness and authority. What is emphasized rather is tenderness, affection, care, and self-sacrifice. This instruction, husbands, love your wives, would have been a striking message in first century Rome. It would have raised the bar for Colossian husbands. But I would suggest also it's a striking message in our own day, even in a culture that would assume that in a marriage relationship, love should be a present dynamic. And here's what I mean when I say that. I think when we read husbands love your wives, uh, that the New Testament view of love actually occupies higher ground than the culture's view of love. 
Okay, so I don't know what songs are on the top 40 list today. I don't know if there is a top 40 list anymore. Teenagers, again, I'm showing my age. We used to listen to pop music on the radio, okay? You can just download it right away immediately, you know, instant gratification. We had to put the dial to the station, and then they play the top 40. I don't know what the top 40 songs are today. My assumption is if you look them all up, at least half of them are going to include the word love in them. So when the Beatles said in the 60s, all you need is love, love is all you need, no one thought like, well, that's a strange message. It was, oh, yeah, that's great. Love is great, you know. Of course, all we need is love. Love's a popular idea in our day. But what do you think most people mean when they talk about love? We most often speak of pe pe people falling in love, falling in love. And, and when people get divorced and you ask them why they're getting divorced, usually the first thing they'll tell you is, I, I, I don't love him anymore. I don't love her anymore. We've fallen out of love. What's reflected in that view? The assumption is that love is ultimately an enactment and expression of my own personal feelings of happiness and self-expression. So you ask the young lady, why do, you, why do you love him? Why do you want to marry him? Well, he, he accepts me and he affirms me and he builds me up and he tells me how pretty I am and how great... What are you saying? Me, me, me. I, I'm getting so much from this guy and as soon as I no longer have that, he's kicked to the curb, right? Love is a fickle thing in our culture. The idea of, of, sort, of sort of Shakespearean love, uh, love that does not bend with the remover to remove, the kind of love that looks upon tempests and is undaunted, that idea is lost in our culture today. It's not what people are talking about when they talk about love. But the biblical view of love is this. Love involves three things. Love involves a commitment of the will. Love involves an affection of the heart. And love involves a sacrifice of the life. A commitment of the will, an affection of the heart, a sacrifice of the life. Love involves a commitment of the will. Love says, I will love you in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, in good days and bad, whether you return my love or not. I'm committing my will. I'm resolving. I will keep my word to you. I will not stop loving you. Now, some of you may think, well, that's... That's a kind of lame idea. It's not very romantic. I wish that there was more feeling in there. That says nothing about butterflies in your stomach and the kinds of things I hear in the pop songs nowadays. Well, love is more than a commitment of the will. Love is also an affection of the heart. Uh, those who think, well, if I just commit to doing someone good, I've successfully loved them, that's not true. Love involves our emotions and our feelings. It is an affection of the heart. It holds the object of love in view as something precious, worthy, something to be desired. Love is a commitment of the will and affection of the heart, and it is a sacrifice of the life. And husbands, this is the thing most thoroughly emphasized in this verse and in the other verses on what husbandly love is to be like. It is to lay down your life in service to another. It is to sacrifice one's life for his bride. It is to be like Jesus and how he sacrifices himself for the church. Love is a sacrifice of the life. Well, there's a second imperative in our passage. Husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. Love them. Do not be harsh with them. Literally, the verb means do not be bitter toward them. Love is to go beyond concrete acts. It is to shape the husband's entire disposition toward his wife. He's not harsh or bitter with her. He's not gruff and angry. He's not annoyed and resentful. Rather, his disposition toward her is shaped by tenderness and responsiveness and care. How can I help you, honey? How can I serve you? He's attentive to her needs. Perhaps Paul's mind when he wrote this passage was shaped by the very same ideas that influenced Peter. When he wrote in 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. A husband who lives with his wife in an understanding way, literally, according to knowledge, will not be harsh toward her. Rather, he'll be sensitive and sympathetic, he'll be tender, he'll honor and respect her. So husbands, you may not, according to the express will of Christ, be harsh with your wife. You may not be severe with her. You may never shout at her. You may not intimidate her. And surely it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, you may not abuse her. This passage strictly prohibits all forms of abuse, whether physical, sexual or verbal. You may not be harsh with your wife. Rather, you're to honor her. 
you're to be tender toward her. In a word, you're to love her. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, thirdly and more briefly, we've considered Paul's instructions to wives. Secondly, his instructions to husbands. Now, thirdly, his instructions to children. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I'm assuming, along with most New Testament commentators, that this letter was read aloud in the context of the gathered assembly of the people of God, a worship gathering just like this. And Paul, expecting this to be the case, addresses children, which means children were present in the gathered assembly with everyone else. I don't think that when Pastor Joe Colossian read this letter out to the Colossian gathering, the Colossian assembly, he got to verse 20, children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord and stopped and said, oh, hang on, let's go get Miss Mary Colossian who's leading the children's church time, tell her it's time to bring all the kids back in because Paul has a word for them. No, I think rather it's more likely that Paul expected there would be children among the gathered assembly. So let me just take a moment to speak to why we at Emmanuel Church have opted to have children in on the gathering here. We have a nursery for kids through age four, but when we began this church, we discussed the whole issue of whether or not we wanted to have like a children's church through fifth grade or whatever other churches do that. We decided not to. And the reason is this. We believe that the Bible is for children. We believe that the worship of God is for children. We believe that preaching is for children. And we believe that when we are gathered together as the ecclesia, as the assembly, as the congregation, as the church, we should see the entire assembly. We should see older ones and younger ones. We should see parents and children. And the Bible in many places will address specifically children in the context of worship gatherings. More than that, we want our children in on this time so they know that they're part of this body. Uh, well, they're part of this gathering. I think it's Al Mohler who said one of the greatest scandals of so much evangelicalism today is that as soon as we get to church, we send everybody to their room. So, so older folks, you know where you're supposed to go. Singles are supposed to go over here. We have the class for the young families. We've got the small group for the young professionals. Children go in this space and all of that. And we miss the gathering. More than that, in the context of these services, we want children forming their impressions of God and His holiness and His grace their impressions of sin and the justice and holiness of God, the wonder and glory of salvation and grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. We want those impressions formed very young in the context of these worship gatherings because we believe the worship gathering, the assembly of God's people for worship, is different than any other thing you do in your week. God promises to meet with His people and to draw near in a special way when His people gather to worship. There is a special disclosure of His presence when we gather together. And we want even young minds to be tasting that, seeing that. We want them to see mom and dad worshiping God. I've told this story before in, in this kind of a context. Uh, my dad was not a very emotive kind of guy. Uh, he wasn't very expressive. You had to kind of dig a little bit to get him to open up. But I would remember as a little child, something changed when my father entered worship. He believed he knew he was in the presence of God seeing him sing, seeing him pray. It, it was special, it was different. And it spoke something to me of the reverence and glory of God and the need for us as sinners to come before him and to receive his grace, to come before him in worship. We want even young minds experiencing that kind of thing in the context of our worship gathering. So let me address the children now, as the Apostle Paul does in this verse. Children here. Uh, I imagine when Paul read this, there were children uh, sitting on the laps of their mom or dad, maybe it was a house church setting or something like that, and maybe they did what I see so many of you parents do whenever I address children in the service, they did the old elbow to the kid or you know, tap their chin up or whatever. We have a very high platform, higher than I like actually, but I will let you know from this platform I can see almost everything. Okay? I notice that when I speak to the children, there's the parental nudge. Children, you need to know that everything in the Bible is for you. You should want to know everything that the Bible teaches because it is for you. 
You need to understand that God created the world and that he created you. You need to understand that God is perfect. God is holy. He's sovereign and just and wonderful and good and loving. You children need to know what the Bible teaches about sin. That we're all sinners. We're all in this sinful mess together, which means I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. To sin is to break God's perfect and holy law. And you have sinned. Uh, You children have a sin nature. And you need to know, children, that sin separates us from God. And that sin places us under His just judgment. And you must know, children, that God has made a way of salvation for sinners like you and me. His name is Jesus, and He is God's own Son. That God sent Him into the world to die for sinners and to be raised from the dead so that He can be a Savior to all those, including children, who come to Him in repentance and faith. And you must know, kids, that Jesus invites even little children to come to Him. He wants to save children. And He calls them, even the smallest, to turn from their sin and to look to Jesus as Savior and Lord. There's a time when children were trying to access Jesus and the disciples kind of pushed them away. And Jesus said, no, let the little children come to me. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus wants you kids to come to him. That you also might be saved. And he wants children to become disciples. That is to say followers of Jesus all their life long. And he promises to receive children in paradise forever in heaven. Children, all of the Bible is for you. But sometimes the Bible will actually single you out and give you specific instructions. And that's what Paul does here in Colossians 3, verse 20. Of course, he assumes they know all the other stuff that I just said to you kids, but now he gives to children a specific instruction on how they, how you kids, can please God in your families. Verse 20, he says, Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. So children, how can you please the Lord? Well, first and foremost, you can do it by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. But having done that, what sort of behavior would please the Lord? And Paul tells us it is to obey your parents in everything. So children, God has given you your parents. Uh, They're given to you as God's gift to you. It's very important that you understand this next thing I'm going to say. Your parents are not perfect. They will sometimes fail. They will sometimes sin against you. I'm a parent. I've been a parent for about five years. And and to be totally honest, I have already failed two times. (laughs) I'm just being open. Kids, that's called sarcasm. It's one of God's greatest gifts. Kids, your parents are imperfect. Your parents are imperfect. They will fail you. They'll sin against you. But notice, kids, God doesn't call you to obey your parents because they're perfect or because they're always right or because they never let you down. Notice the motive that's given in verse 20. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. You don't do it ultimately because your parents are so great. You do it ultimately because the Lord has revealed that this would be pleasing to Him. That's the motive. So kids, you have instructions on how you could please the Lord. It's by obeying your parents. And if you're doing this ultimately for the Lord, well then how should you do it? Should you do it half-heartedly with a bad attitude or rolling your eyes or shrugging your shoulders or muttering something under your breath as you walk out of the room? Of course, that's not how we serve God. And ultimately, your obedience to your parents is obedience to the Lord. So how should we obey Him? Maybe you've heard this language before. I don't know where I first heard it. Maybe it's a Ted Trip book or something like that, but children uh, should obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Kids, how should you obey your parents in service to the Lord? Right away. Mom, dad says, hey, it's time to clean up the room. Right away. I'm eager because I know that in serving my mom and dad, doing what they tell me to do, I'm serving the Lord. Right away. All the way. Seeing that the task is completely finished. We want to go all the way in our obedience and in our service to Christ. And finally, with a happy heart, with cheerfulness, not with grumbling, uh, but rather with a heart that's happy in what God calls us to do. So children, I exhort you with the Apostle Paul 
Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Do it right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Fourthly and finally, and most briefly, instructions to parents. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. The admonition is simple. It is directed to fathers, though I think there's no reason we can't apply it also to mothers. I think fathers are recognized as heads of the home, so they were responsible to see to it that this was followed through on. But obviously, the wife, the mother, has a part to play in this also. The admonition is, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Uh, So fathers and mothers here, I am one of you. We have authority over our kids given to us from God. Our children are entrusted to our care. But there is a way we can parent our children that might provoke them. Like provoke them to sin, provoke them to rebellion, provoke them to discouragement. And we're not to parent In that way, Paul is telling us. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul just tells us, don't provoke your kids. He doesn't tell us how we're supposed to realize that command. Wouldn't you like to know what parental tactics Paul would recommend to make sure we don't provoke our kids or cause them to be discouraged? Well, the reason I think Paul doesn't give a litany of ways we can follow this command is because I think he believes it's very obvious. I think if I interviewed 50 dads here this morning, one after another, and if I said, all right, what are some of the behaviors that would come under the censure of this passage? What are some of the parenting tactics that we should avoid if we're not going to provoke our kids? I'd get probably a lot of the same answers. They'd be things like this. Severe or excessive discipline. Severe or excessive discipline. Do you think that will discourage your child? Imposing unjust and unrealistic standards on your children. Withholding affection. That's a big one. You want to provoke your kids, just withhold the affection that they need as children. Withholding blessing and encouragement, especially when it's earned. Withholding blessing and encouragement. Being stingy with praise and affirmation. Or how about this one? Comparing your children to one another or to other people's children. These are all very simple, very obvious, basic things. Took me two minutes to think up that list of ways we can provoke our children. Fathers and mothers, I just ask you, are you provoking your kids? Are you causing them to become discouraged? Are you being too severe or excessive in your disciplining of the kids? Are you setting the bar too high for them and causing them to become discouraged? Do you withhold affection and blessing and encouragement? Are you stingy with praise and affirmation? Do your children suffer from your constant comparison of them with others? May the Lord help us to be wise parents who do not provoke our children rather build them up, train them well, and cause them to be not discouraged, but encouraged. Well, those are the instructions that Paul gives to wives and husbands, to children, to parents. Next week, we'll consider his instructions to servants and masters. Let me just say this in closing. I imagine many of us who are in these different roles, wife, husband, father, mother, son or daughter, uh, we are aware in very painful ways how we fail in these areas. Okay, so, so I imagine there are many here that are sitting on a mountain of failings when it comes to being a good father or a good mother, being a good husband or a good wife, being a good son or daughter. We see the standard, but we recognize how much we fall short of this standard. Well, what's to be our response to a text like this? It's a powerful emotion to feel like you've been a lousy dad. I've just been, I've been a poor husband. I've just been, I've been a terrible wife. I've been, I've been such a failure as a mom. What do we do when we come across a text like this and we hear these instructions? We see the bar, we see the standard, what are we supposed to do? Well, first of all, if we recognize that we've been failures as husbands and wives, as parents, as children, we're to run to Jesus Christ in repentance. We're to go to the Lord, just acknowledge our sin. I've not been what you called me to be. I've not been what I ought to be. I have so many regrets. Give them all to Jesus. And know that he's pleased to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. And then secondly, if you see what he requires in his word, if the Lord gives you opportunity, seek to follow him in obedience. Bear fruits worthy of that repentance. I've not been the man I need to be. I've not been the woman I need to be. Lord, help me. Help me to do that now. 
Now, I'm aware there are some here you feel that opportunity might be lost now. So the opportunity to improve as a dad is long gone. Kids are grown. You just live with regret. The opportunity to be a better mom, now you can't go back and redo those years. Uh, the marriage has already been fractured. My record as a husband is behind me. My record as a wife is behind me. I'm not going to be able to, to actually obey in the ways that I want to obey. I recognize that sense of regret and loss is profound. But my encouragement to you, brother, sister, is that for all that has gone before that has been bad, that's been negative, that's been an expression of failure, Jesus is pleased to forgive and he's pleased to restore. Though our sins are many, his mercy is more. And your standing before God at the bar of Christ is not ultimately going to be based on whether or not you were a good dad, whether or not you were the perfect wife, whether or not you really honored your parents. The only thing that will pass muster at the bar of judgment is that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. If we go to the bar of Christ pleading the fact that, well, we walked the straight line. We were, I was a good dad. Kept the family in line. Loved my wife. I was a responsible father and husband. That won't pass muster. The only thing that makes us acceptable in God's eyes is the blood of Jesus that covers every stain of sin and makes us acceptable to the Lord. That's our only hope in life and death. That's our only hope of everlasting life with the Lord. Not that we're perfect husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children but that our identity is in Christ and he's pleased to forgive and he's pleased to restore. I urge you to fly to Christ, find forgiveness, help in him, and then ask him to help you to follow him in these ways. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us clear directives in your word for how we ought to live. We thank you for the beautiful picture of the Christian family that you have given us. Thank you for every child here who has experienced something of the blessing of a Christian family. Thank you for every marriage that has been built on these principles and the principles of your word. Thank you for every good father and mother, every good husband and wife, every good son or daughter. But we thank you most for a Savior who compensates for every deficiency who covers every weakness and failing, who can restore us and help us. For those of us here who never had godly parents, who never experienced a godly wife or husband, Lord, you are pleased to compensate where the ideal is lacking. But we do not experience these blessings, Lord, your blood is enough. We pray that we would be satisfied in Jesus and in the power and grace that he supplies, that we would walk in obedience to these precepts he calls us to. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.